Father, speak afresh. We say that we need to hear your voice. We love you. And we pray that you would soften our hearts this evening. Guard us from thinking of the week ahead and being distracted. But might we hear what you're saying again. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in chapter 15 this week. um, And the chapter begins in verse 1, I think with a glimpse of two unpleasant themes that I want us to initially latch onto as we work our way through the chapter. It's a, it's a passage that hi- highlights in glorious technicolour, there on the screen, that the breadth of humanity united against Jesus and the depth of humanity in torturing Jesus. So do you see that in verse 1? Very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the so- whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus and they led him away to Pilate. The breadth there is all of the religious elite gathered, handing him over to the enemy, to Pilate, the Roman ruler. But the depths, I think the depths of humanity are hinted in verse 1 by those first five words, very early in the morning. Why? Well, because they've been blinded by prejudice. Because this meeting, this mock trial that we heard about last week should never have been allowed to take place. On at least four counts, the the Jewish law, the Mishnah had been put away, quietly hidden in a drawer. And the chief priests and the Sanhedrin have the smell of blood. So four reasons why it shouldn't have happened. The first is that it shouldn't have happened at night time. But it did. So it shouldn't be very early in the morning. The fact that this chapter starts like that shows that it was... A fake law court. Secondly, it couldn't be on the eve of the Sabbath, which it was. Thirdly, there must be hard evidence, but as you read read through the trials last week, they couldn't get stuff to agree. It was rumour and gossip. It needed to be public, but it was private. So just in verse 1, before we even jump into the passage, really, you get these key themes being started, initiated. The trajectory of the passage begins in verse 1. And then we see things worked out. So firstly, the breadth of humanity united against Jesus. Preparing this week, I was struck by various things from Mark 15. But I think particularly, there was this unity yet diversity at the cross. Unity in all the variety of people there, but all on the same page. They all want to kill Jesus. And yet they are very different. Imagine it as Mark lining up the mugshots, lining up the identikit parade for us, of who killed Jesus, but they just keep coming. And they're very different people, very different groups of people. But together they conspire against him. Who were they? Well, firstly, we've already seen, we see in verse 1, there were religious men. It's there again in verse 10. The chief priests are the rabble-rousers. They are the ones who stir up the people to get what they want. And then finally, at the cross, verse 31, in the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saves others, they say, but he can't save himself. So you see religious men. Secondly, there's political men, and specifically Pilate. Pilate in Mark is a real people-pleaser. In the other Gospels, you get more of the interaction between Jesus and Pilate, John particularly. But here, he he seems to be convinced of Jesus' innocence. He 
He seems to know that he's no revolutionary against the state. It's obvious to anyone that he's, he's never held a sword. But he wants to please people. He wants to please the crowd. And so he does. He's a puppet to the chief priests. But he's still culpable. So religious men, political men, the story unfolds and it's military men. The soldiers, in a sense, they're doing their job. But in another sense, they're enjoying it far too much. And then the crowds. Everyone else is implicated. It's it's particularly clear in the interaction about Barabbas. Look at verse 7. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stood up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him, crucify him. The, the crowd is culpable. They shouted. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. From the start of the 20th century, there was an American author called George S. Patton Jr. And he said this about, about herd mentality, about crowds uniting. He said, if everybody is thinking alike, then somebody isn't thinking. Which I think is quite helpful. The chief priests know how to play the crowd. They know how to manipulate, to raise the rabble, to get what they want. And so, verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So, we've got the religious, we've got the political, we've got military, we've got the crowd. And in fact, it's worse than that because on the cross, even criminals are conspiring against him and mocking him. The breadth of humanity united together against Jesus. From the heights to the depths of society, if you like. Why does Mark make a big deal of that? I think he wants us to see that the world unites against God. That everybody is implicated in killing the Son of God. Maybe there's echoes of Psalm 2 in the background. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. All of the world united together against Jesus. We'll sing it later. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I I know that it's finished. On the one hand, he's there to die for our sins, but on the other, we're in the crowd, mocking him as he does it. And we say, well, I would never, I would never kill Jesus. Don't don't include me with with that lot. but, But what do we do with God's word in our lives today? How do our hearts cope with his loving rule? Don't we just follow in line with Adam and Eve? Don't we just, we just follow them in, in wanting to get rid of God and wanting to do things our way and, and not his way? Aren't we there in the crowd? John Stott famously said, 
said before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And there we are, shoulder to shoulder, baying for his blood. So one emphasis that comes through, which I found very striking and very challenging this week, it is the breadth of humanity. Everyone united in a common cause against our Creator. The other is the depth of humanity in torturing Jesus. And as you read through the passage, it's all kinds of anguish. Not just the question of the actual crucifixion itself, but there's, there are various threads of torment and agony all focused in on him. I'm going to read 16 to 20 again, and I want you to look out for those different different types of suffering, perhaps. But also notice the word him. I'd say I hadn't noticed this before. But in reading these verses, isn't it striking how the whole episode focuses in on him? That is the drumbeat. That is the epicentre, if you like, of these verses. He is there at the heart of it all. You'll see what I mean as I read it. Verse 16, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him and on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. This is more than just crucifixion. This this isn't just soldiers obediently, unwillingly doing their job, that they're enjoying it. So you see there's mental anguish in the chapter. They mock him, they put the purple robes, they put the crown on him. And then a bit later, the passing crowds, verse 29, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourselves. And the chief priests and teachers of the law stick the knife in as well. Verse 31, they mock him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Which I think is a striking comment. Why? Because because in the context of Mark, I don't think it's just sarcasm. I don't think they're just mocking him. Do do you remember, particularly back in the early chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, the Jewish leaders are there seeing Jesus saving others. Chapter 2, do you remember the paralysed man lowered through the ceiling? Jesus puts him back, back on his feet, says, stand up, pick up your mat, go home. And Mark tells us he did that. And then he says, your sins forgiven as well. And they hate that. Who are you to forgive sins? The leaders know that Jesus is saving people. You get it in chapter 3 as well. Jesus is accosted and Mark says the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. They they had seen some of his miracles. They didn't doubt his miracles. They didn't doubt he was saving people. The doubts they had, well how do you do this? Where does your power come from to do this? And so as they say that on the cross, I don't think it's just sarcasm. The simple answer seems to be they don't want Jesus alive. It started in chapter 3. 
And right through the Gospel until now, they've been looking for a way to get rid of him. Looking for a way to kill him. And people often say, well, if I'd been there, if I'd seen these things with my eyes, if I had seen Jesus, met Jesus, listened to Jesus, touched Jesus, then I would believe. And the answer is, these people were there. And they did see with their own eyes, and they did touch Jesus, but they didn't want him to be real. They didn't believe he was who he claimed to be. Which shows that for friends that say that, it's not a case of you can't believe as if there's no evidence. It's a case of won't believe. Because we don't want to look at the evidence. It comes down to a matter of the will. He saves others, they say, but he can't save himself. And of course they're right. That's very right. We'll have more on that in a bit. Maybe it's not a case of can't save himself, though it's a case of won't save himself. Because he loves his people. So there's mental emotional anguish and then there's physical Mark in typical Mark and fashion is to the point doesn't dally too much with detail just gets on with it it's horrible it's dreadful but it's not the emphasis there's, there's the crown of thorns there's hitting him with the staff there's spitting on him then there's crucify him and I, I take it in part Mark's lack of detail is because we're meant to get it we know what that means we know about the flogging and the nailing, but, but it's more than just mental anguish or physical anguish, it's the spiritual anguish as well. My God, my God, he says, why have you forsaken me? We're not going to get to the very depths of why he says what he says there. We had it in a morning series in Psalm 22 before Easter, so if you want to go back and listen to some of the context as to why Jesus brings that psalm to mind, then please do. But it's a, it's a psalm of God's king. God's king is set upon and hounded by God's enemies. But the end of the psalm is, is rejoicing. Rejoicing down the ages, rejoicing around the nations, people praising God for his kindness as he rescues his son, the king. So even in the midst of the darkness, there's this glimmer of hope if we know Psalm 22. As we look at Jesus on the cross, we're just getting, we're just getting a tip of the iceberg as to what's really happening. The cross was the place of curse, according to the law. Darkness reveals God's anger. The eternal Trinitarian relationship as to Jesus is Incarnational human nature is for a time severed. And people don't quite know what's going on in terms of the spiritual anguish. They think he's calling Elijah. Do you see that? It's a bit confusing, quite what they're saying there, why they're thinking that. It's probably, it's probably that they're not convinced, actually, completely, that he's not the Messiah. They've retained an element of doubt as to his identity. And we saw it this morning in Two Kings, that they knew that Elijah was supposed to arrive first before the Messiah comes. And so maybe they're thinking Jesus calls Elijah to come and look after him, to rescue him.
We don't quite know, but we do know the depths of the reality of the human heart. And it's a sobering passage because it's a mirror. And it shows us what we're like. It shows us the reality of who we are. Again, it's striking because increasingly, in our culture, people are seen as innately good. As we're to be tolerant with all kinds of things. And there's truth in that, of course, but we're not allowed to challenge the depths of people's hearts at times. People see that the bad stuff that happens is an anomaly, or it's not really real, it's not the reality. But I find that bizarre because I, I read the news, I watch the news, and I see a lot of anomaly. I see a lot of bad stuff, a, a lot of people not being innately good. And I look into my own heart and see the reality of what I'm like and what I'm capable of. My selfishness and my, the way, the way we, we, we mentally murder people, that we, we, we replay situations so we win and they lose. The reality of, of my own, of our own depravity. The stuff that we could never broadcast. The stuff that we would never want out in the open. And yet, passages like this ought to, I think, rightly bring us up short. Because they show us the reality of humanity. Because they are a mirror to our own soul. But if that's what we're like, then we have to ask the question, why did he let them do this? Why did Jesus let them? We saw it last week with Andy. We've seen it week on week on week for the last few chapters that Jesus has very clearly been in control. This isn't him just kind of taking his eye off the ball for a bit or God having a a moment where he was just thinking about something else and suddenly he finds his son on the cross and it's all gone horribly wrong. Now if he was in control, why did he let them do this? Again, I want to go through the passage again and I want to draw together three brief strands to help us think through what's actually going on. Why Jesus let them. Three threads. The first one is Jesus is silent. Have a look again at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now the right to remain silent, for any of you lawyers out there, is a, is a legal right recognised all around the world. It's the kind of thing you see often in police dramas. If you watch The Bill or Morse, whatever it might be. They say something like this. They say, you do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention, when questioned, something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. Of course, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not being silent to avoid incriminating himself. He's being silent because of Isaiah 53. He is self-consciously not opening his mouth. Let me read to you from Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Here is a king that 700 years beforehand Isaiah looks ahead to and speaks of. Here is a king who would die willingly and silently, though he didn't deserve it. One who would be oppressed and judged. One whose generation would not stick up for him. We've certainly seen that. So Jesus is silent because he is the sheep. He is the lamb being led to the slaughter. And so he does not open his mouth. Secondly, he is substitute. He is substitute for Barabbas. Now it was the custom at the festival, verse 6, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests and had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stood up the crowd to give, get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. You, you see the irony, it, it's too obvious to us now. But the, the one who deserves to die does not die, and the one who does not deserve to die, dies. The innocent Jesus dies so the guilty Barabbas can go free. Mark has told us already that Jesus will, will die as a ransom for many. And here we have that beautifully but horribly illustrated for us. Barabbas the guilty is freed. It's, it's a substitution foretaste of what's to come. And of course we are Barabbas. We are the guilty criminal. Jesus dies for us. He saved others, they say, but he can't save himself. Why is that true? Because he is dying for his people. Because he is taking the darkness, the anger of God on himself. Because he loves his people, because that is the plan. Because he substitutes. But thirdly, Jesus is seen. And again, this was a slightly new thing for me this week in preparing this. So we know what happens next. We know that Mark cuts the camera into the temple. In verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain, remember that bit that separated God from the people and people from God here. A permanent picture of do not enter, do not come in, you are not allowed. Our uncleanness, our unholiness, his perfection and justice and goodness. The inability that we have naturally to relate to him. But now look what's happened, that the curtain has gone, torn from top to bottom, torn by God. Now we can know God, but, but also more than that, now we can see God. 
Because we see the centurion in the very next verse. Isn't that striking? We can be friends with God now, but we can see who he is and what he's like. We see something of our response, of awe, of recognition. Temple curtain torn in two, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Do you see, Jesus' death on the cross is the key to his identity being made public, being out in the open. And it's made public from the lips of a Gentile soldier. The religious so-called insiders execute him. The oppressive outsider soldier identifies him. It answers that question we've asked week on week. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's, He's the son of God, says the centurion. And we've been in on that from day one at the very beginning. Mark 1 verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's not a surprise to us, but the gospel has come full circle. The cross means that Jesus can be seen, that we know who he is. Yes, we have access to God now, to the Holy of Holies, as the temple curtain is removed, but but now his identity is public. It symbolically, the curtain symbolically hid and separated God. But suddenly now we can see him. Even by Gentile soldiers, even by all of humanity, even by East Oxford, in all its diversity. That seems to be what Mark is getting at. That's why he puts verse 38 and then verse 39. The invisible becomes visible. At the cross. Which seems to be an irony. Because we've said it before, but it looks weak. And it looks foolish. And here is a man suffering and dying, but here is God being seen. Shoulder to shoulder with the Gentile soldier we stand. And we can see him at the cross. He is the God of the cross, the God who loves people like us. 